Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? You want to talk about changing the narrative? Well, today, J.D. is going to talk to a groundbreaking, life-changing doctor. Have you ever heard of gender-specific medicine? Well, Dr. Legato is an internationally renowned academic physician, author, and lecturer. She is the brilliant pioneer in the new field, which she created called gender-specific medicine. She has devoted her career to exploring the differences in men and women's physiology and their experiences of the same disease. From there, she founded the Partnership for Gender-Specific Medicine at Columbia University. She is on a mission. She is also the founding editor of the journal Gender Medicine, and she won a prestigious award for the best book written for the lay public on cardiovascular disease. Two of her books, Why Men Die First and Eve's Rib, have made a lot of noise and influenced the world of medicine. She is practicing in New York City and has been listed each year in New York Magazine as Best Doctor since the magazine's inception in 1983. Welcome, Dr. Marianne Legato. Hello. Lovely to be with you. <laughs> so happy to see you again. And thanks so much for coming on, Doc. You and I have already chatted. We have indeed. I feel like we've known each other a bit of time now. Right. This should be easy, except for we're flipping the script a little bit, and I'm asking you questions. So first of all, let's just try to get some background. I want to figure out what are some of the messages you received growing up? Very interesting in that my father was the village physician, and he did everything. He took care of babies after he delivered them, and he followed patients to their old age and was adept enough at learning surgical techniques that he became a fellow of the American College of Surgeons during his lifetime. So he was pretty fabulous and there was nothing that he didn't try and usually succeed at in terms of medicine. I uh, was a great fan of his and at the age of three decided I wanted to imitate him. And so he fostered this half in fun by taking me on rounds with him when I was really a little girl. And on Sunday, we would set out in his gray Buick and he would have a list of patients that he was going to make house calls on. And if there was nothing dreadfully contagious, he'd let me come in. And I would sit and watch him chat with the family and examine the patient. Then when we came out, he would give me a little lecture on the disease, the pathophysiology and what he intended to do. So I was ready to go, and one morning he took me to St. Mary's Hospital, where he was one of the chiefs of surgery, and the door was opened by an enormously fat, lovely nun called Sister Christiana. And I turned to my father and I said, Daddy, I was five years old, I'm going to have a daughter named Christiana, and I'm going to medical school. (laughs) (laughs) So that was my family dynamic. Uh, I did indeed go on to medical school, to the same school that my father had attended, 
New York University College of Medicine and eventually graduated and have found the career for which I think I was uh, genetically <laughs> and culturally intended, which was to be a physician. I love patient care. That's amazing. And I mean, that message was so uh, consistent throughout your life, having that early exposure early on. Was your mother as supportive? And did your dad continue to be supportive? I mixed feelings, JD. It's a great question. <clears throat> she had left her home at the age of 16 to enter nurses training because her parents told her there wasn't enough money to send both their son and daughter to college. And so she was kind of on her own and she thought, well, what can I do? She hadn't even finished high school, but she went into nurses training where she met, guess who, my father. <laughs> and during World War II, actually went at night to finish high school. And when he came back, he agreed to send her to Barnard College where she went on to do her bachelor's degree. I think she was always a little disconcerted, which is totally understandable, sure. but I was able to become a physician and she had unfortunately struggled even to get to where she was. So how did, did that play out in a conscious way or did you just kind of know that to be the truth? It played out pretty consciously, mm -hmm. although she did come to my graduation from medical school. We loved one another, but I would not say that that relationship was without its complications. I mean, that's understandable. The idea that you weren't able to do something, and, and since this is a thing that, that people don't understand, you know, a lot of your stuff plays out through your children, and people have a hard time acknowledging that. And if you just embrace it, you could manage it more effectively. Yeah, you're so right. I have learned to see in my mind's eye a 16-year-old walking out of her mother's apartment to go and enroll herself in nurses training, finishing high school at night during World War II when she already had three children, and then going on to college. I think of it often, and I think she was very brave. And, and she probably didn't, or did she know that you thought that of her, that you thought it was pretty incredible what she did? I don't think she knew that. Yeah, that's my guess. And that's what harbored the kind of feelings of unrest that she might have wrestled yes. with. Yeah. It also was difficult for her that uh, my father so loved me and fostered my desire to become. Um, uh, that, that was hard for her. And I understand that. Yeah, well, it's, able, it's, it's beautiful that you're able to reflect on her, her accomplishments positively with just understanding where she was. And that's pretty incredible. So when did you decide gender-specific medicine was going to be your focus and why? This is a great story, J.D. Okay. As you know, I am conservatively and conventionally trained mm -hmm. and as a fellow studying the heart and everything else that I studied in medical school, we were taught that the male was the criterion for all humanity and that what was true of men had to be true of women. And we never questioned that, which I find so amazing. One day, a journalist walked into my office and she said, look, the American Heart Association has given me your name and the name of four other cardiologists because I wanna write a book on the difference between the way men and women experience heart disease. And so four of them had turned her down. 
but being the fifth and never saying no to any offer, I said, sure, let's look at the data and see if you're right. And we wrote a book called The Truth About Women, The Female Heart, The Truth About Women and Coronary Disease. And I found to my astonishment that the whole experience of women and indeed the very response to treatment was different for the two sexes. So I said to myself, wow, if the hearts are this different and we're treating men and women with the same formula, but women are dying and men are not in the same proportion, maybe we should look at the rest of the body and thereby this idea that men and women, can you believe it, were different from what <laughs> Uh, it turned out to be true in all the tissues of the body and indeed in the very way our genes are expressed. And so I embarked on this tremendous adventure. People say journey. This was an adventure of trying to define and decide what was different in human function as a function of biological sex. So now if you're interested in men and women, J.D., you have to be interested in the fact that some people don't fit into one box or the other, and that when you're a really sophisticated listener, and remember you and I talked about the value of listening and how you felt that listening was the key to expanding your own world. I realized that there was a whole transition of people on the spectrum of female to male, and so I offered the possibility to my colleagues throughout the world that we should study variations in human sexual identity and sexuality. And guess what, JD, you would have predicted. <laughs> Go ahead, say it. They didn't want to do that. Exactly. So wait, let me slow you down a little bit because I really want to know just how challenging it was. I know you probably reflect upon it and think, oh, it was really challenging, but can you give some language to just how challenging it was when you came up with this idea? I'll tell you it was challenging. In the first place, I was a woman in the 60s at Columbia University making my career. And to say that it was a world of paternalistic white males would not be an exaggeration. Right. And when I came to the hierarchy of Columbia and said, I have a wonderful idea that we should talk about what, whether men and women are identical or different, and perhaps you sh we should be studying both sexes separately. I only had one ally, and that was the chairman of the Department of Medicine. And Not a bad ally. And he said, if you can find the money, if you can find the money, mm -hmm. you can go ahead and establish a program. So you want to hear a real piece of serendipity? Sure. Uh -huh. When I wrote this book, The Female Heart, with my colleague, Carol Coleman, the journalist who had really wanted me to do this, the American Heart Association gave us a prize as the best book of the year for doctors. But serendipitously, I don't know if you believe in God and, and guidance, J.D. I believe in the universe talking to us. <laughs> One of the judges of the book was a man who was a consultant to Procter & Gamble. Oh, my goodness. And he called up and he said, I'd like to take you to tea. And, of course, I say yes to all invitations. <laughs> He said, how would you like to be a consultant to Procter & Gamble about women's health? Wow. And you know, JD, how you get a flash of inspiration? Sure. <clears throat> I said to him, you don't know whether I would be a great consultant or not. I have a better idea. Why don't you persuade Procter & Gamble 
to form a partnership with Columbia University, which will open to you the whole world of scholarship. And he said, that sounds like a great idea. So two years later, with innumerable trips back and forth to Cincinnati, uh, we got a $4 million grant from Procter & Gamble. My goodness. And guess what happened at Columbia? What? They called me and asked me if I had taken money from Procter oh. & Gamble. No. Or been given stock options or stocks. My chairman, who was such a great ally, heard about this. He was in Florida doing a symposium. He flew back. He came into the room and he said, if you're going to hang Marianne Legato, you're going to have to hang me too. And we established the fact that I had not been bribed nor uh, persuaded by Procter & Gamble to arrange this partnership uh, between the two places. And the last part of did I have any conflicts was when John Pepper, who was the chairman of Procter & Gamble at the time, and Dr. Dean Parties, who was the dean, met in the conference room at Columbia. Mr. Pepper came to see what the situation was before he gave us any grant money with the dean. And he said, well, we've been talking to Dr. Legato for two years now. And if after another year, our discussions continue and we remain convinced that this is a good idea, we will give you our support. And I stood up and I said, Mr. Pepper, you and I have talked for two years. If you don't know now whether this is a good idea or not, I don't have anything more to offer. And he burst out laughing. It was pretty, pretty courageous. And he sent me a million dollar check the next week. Wow. So it was uh, the usual story of ups and downs in human endeavor. But I thought it was a great idea. I loved my chairman, who's Mike Weisfeld. He's now at Johns Hopkins. He's always been a wonderful advocate for me. And here we are. We're now 25 years into the uh, into the uh, adventure. You know, I want to take a step back just to talk for a second about how important your father's view, empowerment. Yes. How important that was and how important that is in a child's life to have someone who sees them and believes in them. I walked into his study one night when I was in high school and he was reading a medical book. I said, Daddy, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. And I can still see him sitting there with his great cocktail and this huge book. He said, I'm reading about the Whipple procedure, which I have to do tomorrow. I said, Daddy, that's the most complicated operation in medicine. He said, yeah, well, I'm going to do one in the morning, so I'm reading about it. And I thought to myself, his confidence, he, by the way, did a successful Whipple the next day. He didn't have a moment of self-doubt. He simply thought this was his job. He read the instructions, and he went the next day to do it. And I think having confidence in your idea of yourself and of your what shall I say, your vocation or your project? Sure. So important. So I think what I learned from my father was perseverance and that life is not just a series of prizes and good things, that it can be moments of really terrible uh, feelings of defeat and despair. You have to pull yourself together unless you feel that you've actually done everything to achieve a goal 
and you have to keep on moving. That's the only way to get it done. You know, what's, what's coming up for me is, you know, people, particularly, you know, I, I'm an adjunct professor and I hear constantly from new clinicians about the imposter syndrome. And I, I just, I don't hear that in you <laughs> ever feeling like you were an imposter. Is that true? Or am I making that up? No, JD, mm. I think it's fair to say, and you know, I've been thinking a lot since you and I chatted mm-hmm. about self-reflection and how I think I read recently, or, or you said recently, people have three views. Their own, the view they give to the world, the view of themselves they present to their colleagues, and then their view of themselves. And I have to say that I really concentrate a lot more on the project or the world around me and what I think I have to do than on how I present myself or what I am about, if that, if you, if that makes any sense. No, it does. It does. So what I hear you saying is that you have the opportunity to reflect on yourself in one way, as it's perceived by the outside world, uh, in, in an internal way, or maybe even a combination of the both. And you choose to focus on the project that keeps you driven. Right. If I thought about my age, my appearance, my ambition, my position in the world all the time, I don't think I'd get very much done. Wow. That's good. That's good information. That is. That's that's a that offers a perspective that people can make sense out of from their own cultural lens. Yeah. How to apply that. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So in an interview you said men are more vulnerable than women, beginning yes. the womb. Can you explain this and why it is so? Boy babies are born two to one to girl babies and only half of them survive in in, in general. They have a much weakened respiratory apparatus. They are much more likely to be born with developmental defects in their neurological development. And on the whole, they begin life kind of behind the eight ball. I think emotionally, men are trained culturally. JD, you should, I think, be willing to affirm this. Mm -hmm. A stiff upper lip that a uh, firm denial of any personal suffering is an indication of uh, affective masculinity. And I think this makes them very much more vulnerable to depression, which never has a remedy. Suicide is much more frequent in men than women, particularly men in the armed forces or the police force. And their their suicides are more successful more often than those of women. There are vulnerabilities, for example, in disease entities to which men are more susceptible. COVID infection, for example, is much more likely to be serious and lethal in men. So on the whole, I've written a book called Why Men Die First in an attempt to explain the vulnerabilities of men. They are indeed, I think, the weaker sex. That's why they die first. And I think we treat them badly in terms of their recognition of their inner lives and the struggle that they have socially. You know, it's such a powerful thing that you're saying both. I don't know why my cat is deciding to get extremely involved in this interview, but let me try to move her out the way. You know, what you're saying is so powerful because of all the stereotypes of what men are and what men are not. Yes. Right. And so you're just, you're kicking right through all of that. And you're talking about vulnerability in a way that makes weakness user friendly you know it's it's like men see weakness as a fault a failure 
And this opportunity to see themselves as vulnerable, I think, makes it makes you know the feeling of weakness a little bit more user friendly. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's a, a good point. I treat men as well as women. People think I'm a specialist in women's health, and I'm not. I'm a specialist in human health. See, that, that's what I like about you, Doc. That's it right there. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, we're a part of the same family, <laughs> and uh, I find. Some of my male patients, when I finally get them to speak as vulnerable and as complicated emotionally as any of the women in my practice. You know, you said something else about the distraction of men, you know, how men manage to hide this vulnerability, you know, in, in so many active ways, right? Because with men, it's problem solution. So if there is a problem, they can get active about it. Then they're moving towards a solution. There's right. that piece in the middle, the emotionality of it all. Right. Um, and still feeling depressed, still feeling sad, still feeling so vulnerable. That doesn't go away. And when you said, you know, you talked about the police and the army. I mean, it just makes so much sense why police brutality is out of control the way it is. I mean, also in terms of white supremacy. But if we add in it, this whole idea of trying to take control and and uh, not feel the feelings and avoidance. That makes a pretty powerful, angry, if you will, way right. to move through the world and trying to manage situations. Right. right. That's pretty intense. I'm just letting that sit in for a minute. That's that's powerful. Well, so, go ahead, add to it. I was watching the news this morning, that incredible vignette of a young black man Patrick Lailia, back of the head, and I was listening to the discussion after this so devastating video. This this man had two children, among other things, and he was a young man. And the policeman, it is alleged, was on top of him. And then no, he was. I don't know if you saw the video or not. His name is Patrick Lailia. He was on top of him. And so, and the gentleman discussing it after this on the talk show said that we didn't understand the fear that police have that they're going to be assaulted or killed. And I think it's hard to believe, maybe this is not appropriate for a podcast, but it's hard to believe that a man would have felt any fear. And I think what he probably felt was more fury. Mm, mm, let that sink in. I, I This absolutely, you're on the right podcast for this. This is what we talk about. And, and in terms of you know, how the media, this just, you know, dry, I'm going to get back to you, of course, but you just make a point that I have to support, which is, you know, media is not our friend. It is run by the white supremacist system that perpetuates all of the myths that continue to exist. How is someone in fear when uh, when 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 someone is underneath you? And, and um, someone explained in, I think it was jujitsu, I think Jolly said it last show, you know, in jujitsu, the most powerful position you can be in is on top of somebody and on top of their upper body, which is where he was. And to have the time to turn the body cam off to kill someone is filled with ego and fury. How, how do you not say that is exactly what that was? So I appreciate you naming it. How do you keep your heart from breaking just watching? I've been a mess ever since. I'm not going to lie to you. I have, I have been off my game ever since seeing that video. Uh, it's been... 
it's traumatizing is what it is. And this is what you and I talked about, you know, last time we met. How do you respond to all of the stuff that's going on, for example, in Florida about yeah. race theory and so on and banning books that you know, look, in a real way? This, this is not new for black people. This is not new. Mm-hmm. This is new. This is new for the white community. It's it's like what social media brings to the, to light. It's like these murders of black bodies um, by systems of oppression, banning of books, quieting us down, shutting us down, shutting us out. None of this is new in the black community. None of it. The fact that it's being seen, it doesn't improve our lives. The reality is is that it's old news with uh, a new stage. And what are white people going to do about it, quite frankly? Because we've been trying to do something about it for generations. And the you fact think, that, go ahead. think you're making any progress, J.D.? That depends on how you define progress. You know, it, de- it depends on how you define progress. I, I, I don't feel progress. Um, of course, that's not actual feeling. So I don't think progress, I guess. I, I struggle. I struggle. I mean, I'm so impacted by the racial trauma because I'm so conscious of it all that I am constantly trying to figure out how to use the platform differently in order to share the real time experience of what this looks like in black and brown bodies. And I I don't know, you know, I heard one snippet of this conversation in Florida where, where these, you know, black representatives were standing up and they were, they were asking, they were, it was, it was heartbreaking. They were saying, just, just give us this. Just don't take this away. I, I couldn't even tolerate it. It's so disgusting. So, you know, progress isn't the word I'd use. I'm sure you saw that the exodus of the uh, Ukrainian population from that country, for me, what stood out was the black students been sent time and time again to the end of the line to get into the border. And I think to myself, well, I'm just speechless sometimes at watching some of these indignities and life endangering practices against people of color. I have to say. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Look, you know, again, no surprise to us. And the fact that, you know, I had to sit with um, people from the Ukraine and from Russia and, and empathize and, and provide support in whatever way I can in the capacity that, capacities that I have, I have to operate from two parts of myself. Yeah. I have to be as empathic as I can be because that's what I am as a human being. Right. And I also have to grieve the fact that people who look like me are literally pushed aside. I mean, the amount of people who are coming in from the Ukraine right now invited in. And I think about what happens in other countries with um, with with people of color who who are refugees. As much as I appreciate the coverage of the Ukrainian disaster and how important it is, what happens in Ghana and and in Syria? I haven't seen that kind of coverage. That's exactly the point. People are attractive, white, educated, cultured people. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of heartbreaking that we don't feel the same compassion for other societies that have been obliterated who don't look like my colleagues. Right, right. Look, look, Doc, when you bring, you know, you're you're touching me because this is this is where I'm struggling. You know, this idea that um, there are so many people who stood up 
for Ukraine. So many I know. brown and white people. Right. And this murder happened a week ago. And I can count the white bodies that I've seen. Say anything. Say anything. And and that 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 uh that stops me in my tracks. About power, JD. It's all about the fact that the initiation of black people into our society was under the yoke of slavery. Right. And the whole, uh, it seems to me, political push now is to keep things quiet the way right. they have always been. Right. And not to acknowledge and look at and talk about the fact that the world is diverse mm-hmm. and that we have to accept people as they come. Yes. And not deny their cultural burdens. Yes, and not deny history. I mean, that's the whole that's the whole fight against right. critical race theory is about right. is about history. And this is what I'm going to bring it back to you because this is what I appreciate about your work. You know, and and your work as I've been researching and understanding you, you always have this ability to bring in that cultural lens, which is so ahead of your time. I mean, it's so progressive for where you were in terms of being a doctor in your lifetime. I mean, you knew before it was the language that we should be talking about this. So that's why, you know, I have so much respect for your work. You, you've really, you know, found a way to, to introduce it and bring it in into academia, which is important because people who look like you with your power have to be able to have these conversations because people don't respect it unless it's horrible to say and so elitist and classist, but they don't respect it unless it comes with a whole lot of research and you just slam it on them like, bam, there's all the research, take it. Well, it hasn't always been accepted. <laughs> I know, I know you're telling the truth. When I propose that we study as a whole community of scholars, variations in human sexuality, I can remember I was in, in a conference in Berlin and I was told to be quiet, that this was not a topic that anybody was interested in and let's head back to the world of science. And I thought, Excuse me, are you not looking at the world and its and all of its variations? Are you not interested in these transitional forms as opposed to a, a red box and a blue box? So it took about 10 years before I was able to publish The Plasticity of Sex, which won a prize. I was happy to learn. I was amazed. I came in in the morning and my secretary said, by the way, you won a, an award for this book. I said, what? Because I thought it would be very controversial. It's it's incredible. I'm going to hold on that for a minute because I want to ask you a couple other questions and we're going to get to that. It, it's an incredible book. And thank you so much for gifting it to me. It really is very fascinating. Thank First, you. I want to talk to you about depression. And you said that you don't think women suffer a depression at a higher rate than Uh-oh. men. Can you talk about that a little bit? I think women discuss their depression and they are not, this is kind of a paradox, but women are denigrated when they try to express feelings of anxiety and depression and they get slammed by, oh, you're just being hysterical. It's nothing, there's nothing really wrong. Um, so I think that the, the depression is more easily expressed by women and men do not express their distress. They are more likely to turn to things like drinking, gambling, uh, sex addiction, uh, being buried in their work, but anything rather than say, I have a feeling of emptiness and sadness about my life and I'm running to keep ahead of it. Mm-hmm. So I think that the incidence of depression in men is greatly underestimated. Yeah. 
Yeah, I wanted to hear you say that. Yeah, I think you're right. And so you mentioned that depression also depresses the immune system, which I think is incredibly important for people to understand. So the risk of how it impacts us should never be underestimated. And I think it needs to be further elevated. Can you say more about that? The idea of dying of a broken heart is not just a fallacy, J.D. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you said, your father said, I'm trying to get these words right. Um, he said something about depression that's treated is more dangerous than depression that yeah. Yeah. who was a great teacher he was always throwing out these aphorisms he said marianne remember that when a patient is really profoundly depressed they cannot summon the energy or the cognitive push to kill themselves if you start to treat them and they recover enough they will then be vulnerable to selecting and effecting suicide. So be careful when you treat depression. As you bring people out of the stupor of despair, they are very much more likely to recover to the point where they say, well, I know what to do and how to do it and make it happen. Which is why suicidality is so high in people who have come out of treatment. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that's an important point for people to hear. And the fact that it suppresses the immune system, when are we going to connect emotional and physical health in a way that people really make sense out of it? If you're chronically ill, there's a mental health component. We're doing a conference in Italy in a month from now, which explains the biology of how, as one of my brilliant colleagues, Jillian Einstein in Canada said, how the world writes on the body. That's something Ooh, I love. The that's world I do. writes on the body. Jillian Einstein, professor. Love that. Okay, in Canada. We know now that the environment somehow triggers a response, probably through the brain, obviously, to our actual physiology, which helps us adapt to the environmental challenge but leaves us changed, sometimes in a permanent way, as a function of our environmental experience. And you should, of all people, appreciate it. Now, the way that happens is, has given birth, or a new science called epigenetics has been born to explain this connection between environmental challenges and experience and human physiology. You and I will not leave this podcast with the same brains that we entered with, believe it or not. And, and I appreciate that. And what bothers me about all these newfound studies is they still don't find a way to directly connect that to marginalized and oppressed communities in, in such a way that it, 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 it requests, it demands something more be done. How yeah. can you deal with racial trauma? How can you live in poverty, not have access, inadequate health care, a, a, a wage that's not livable, how, and you push this child into schools that are not equitable. How do you not expect that to impact one's mental health, and yet you pathologize them? I well, let me tell you that my colleagues, we picked them very carefully, but the leaders in this field are very, very, very aware of not only the damage done to third world the value that understanding their uh, physiologic responses to their environment and the effects that it has as a valuable example for the world and for science. Well, and, and they talk about, you know, yes, they talk about the third world, but we, we have that world right, right here. Yeah. <laughs> we have that world right here. 
Yeah. You know? I remember when I was working in the inner city during 9-11 in a very, very <laughs> impoverished community. And I went in as an outpatient therapist when it was new and ready to talk about 9-11. And the people in the community who live in extreme poverty were like, it's 9-11 here every day. Why, why should we? And that was so profound for me. So I was like, you know what? I've got to, I, that's when I started to really realize I've got to figure out how to make sense out of this for people who don't have access to it and those who are going to be working with people who don't have access to it. I think it's going to take many more generations that come after us to even make a dent on this, J.D. I believe you. I do believe you. So I want to shift to um, women's health. Historically, you said in the beginning, and I just want to go back to that, that you know, women's health has not been prioritized the way in which we would hope that it would. So, well, I, I think what happened was in the beginning, women were not looked at as not identical with men. Right. Okay. And so we had one ruler to measure everything. Okay. And we never, we made the tremendous intellectual error of assuming that what we knew about men was true about women without individual testing of women. And that has turned out to be anything but true. So women's health was neglected. Mm -hmm. And now I think we have caught up to a tremendous extent. I mean, we've been doing this work for 25 years, right. and I think we've made enormous progress. We have textbooks, journals, conferences, um, and very interesting discussions now that have real meat, by the way, with feminists about the biology of why women and their different experience present a different picture in the doctor's office than a man. So. I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge you a little bit and wonder how is this going to start playing out in terms of marginalized communities? You know, I've I've, I've been noting lately, particularly as, as my sister's in the hospital, how I see and from my own years of of treatment and health issues, um, how white doctors approach um, black and brown bodies in medicine. It's pro it's problematic, and and the research is now catching up to how you know women of color are treated differently, and the amount of pregnancy losses, and how many how much research is required, how many stories do we need to hear of misdiagnoses in brown and black bodies before it catches up to what we're now discovering about women? I think we have to depend on the current generation of people who are training okay. to see people not through the lens of color or, or deprivation, but to sit down, as you said so eloquently, if they would just listen, they would be far, far ahead. And one of the things I've always loved is teaching medical students about the unique, the uniquely interesting features of every patient. Every patient is different. And until, first of all, I have to say that the power that exists to keep people of color down and not franchised to be all that they can be is very scary. It is. I think, it is. Uh, looking at Florida to me is terrifying. What? Looking at France's political debate now, scary as can be. Looking at the last administration. Yes. Yes. It is, it is scary. I mean, people, you know, people talk, use Florida and, and I, I, I say this repeatedly. Yes. Is it, is the, are the politics here crazy? Yes, absolutely. And what my mother used to always say, at least, you know, what it is in the South, 
and in, in, in places like this. Whereas in the North and the West, it's in Midwest, it's equally scary. There's the same things going on. It's just so covert and and not as you know bodacious as it is here. So I, I think I think it's all scary. I'm with you. I'm totally scared. And I, you know, this election rigging and the redistricting of uh, neighborhoods, it's all about power, JD. It's all it's about power. It, well, as, the, as it always has been. Yes, and, and I, just to label power even more clearly, capitalism. It's the fear of the loss. You know, you and I talked about that. The greatest motivation is fear. And that's my, my words, not yours. The greatest motivator is fear. And what, what do people fear more than a loss of capital? And that, that, that is where the power constructs lose their mind. You know, so talk about Eastwood because that, that's such a smart book that everybody should get. I think women should have that. How do we talk about that? Talk about the book you wrote about for women about Eve's Rib. Oh, well, that was my attempt to tell the public that women and men are not identical. So I went, <laughs> I went system by system through the medical literature and showed that there were important differences between men and women. The reason I did that was I couldn't convince Procter and Gamble to invest in Colombia unless they thought there was some meat on the bone. And the meat on the bone is that women were unique and different and Procter and Gamble's customers are all women. And so I did this research. I can remember they asked me to talk to 1500 of their PhDs at Procter and Gamble. They're not stupid. <laughs> and convince the PhDs that there was a science behind the duality of human sex. Okay. And I remember I wrote the book essentially as an out an outgrowth of that that lecture, that discussion. Amazing. Amazing. I called my publisher up, JD, and I said, listen, you have to do me a favor. He said, Oh, what is it? <laughs> I said, you have to publish a book for me on gender specific medicine. I have to give it out to the Procter and Gamble PhD people. And they did it as a favor to me. Nice. And uh, that was the, really the beginning of the idea that there was some substance to the science of gender medicine. It's fascinating. And that brings us right into the plasticity of sex, which, by the way, I mean, this book is loaded with so much incredible information. It's it's riveting. And I, I was struggling with questions. I was like, oh, how do we get into it? And I just thought, it's too much. It's too much to talk about. They need to buy it and read it and take their time going through it. But I do want to know... What was the most surprising lesson you learned in writing? Well, my conviction was that if there was a biology to the human family, there had to be biological reasons for or biological profiles of people who are not distinctly either male or female in one box or another. That homosexuality, that gender dysphoria, that... Uh, deviations or disturbances in anatomic development all had a biological basis. And that was my thesis, my hypothesis. And I think what I tried to explain in the book was the beginning of the science that shows that whatever we are is a product of real yeah. biology. It's yeah. not imagined. And that to say somebody who is a homosexual is a deviant or has an ethical flaw or has made a religious error is absurd. Mm -hmm. And there is biology, we think, to how homosexuality not only is created, but 
others have suggested fit into society quite nicely, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's, uh, I was told never to embark on this, JT. It's a powerful, I can see that it's powerful. I mean, you start with the determination of the biological sex to effective treatment of the LGBTQIA community. I mean, it, there's so, it's so rich, you know, and you, you include, you include race and culture. And I think it, it is important. So I would imagine people did tell you, stop it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I, have, I have a beloved son who, when I first became interested in public life and speaking on this subject, he said, mom, I fear for you. I said, why? He said, because if you put your head over the trench, it's very definitely likely to be shot off. Yeah. Well, I never forgot that. He was a little boy. But that's yeah, cool. I can understand it. That's very real. But you know what? You're still here. You're still doing it. And you're still, you know, pushing through the noise. So I think that's amazing. I want you to talk to women right now. How do we encourage more women, especially women who don't have access to resources in the most marginalized parts of community, how do we encourage them to become doctors? Because that's one thing that has to happen. What's your advice to them? Well, I'm reminded of my daughter, who is a very loving human being, mm -hmm. who went up to a homeless shelter. And she fell in love with a little boy of about seven, who she said was one of the smartest kids she'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, one day she took him by the hand, and I think this is a great example for what you're trying to ask me. Mm -hmm. And she walked him up to Columbia University. She said, this is a university, and you can be here if you continue to try to learn and read. And uh, I never forgot that. And I think that my daughter, Christiana's journey with that little boy the few blocks from the homeless shelter mm -hmm. to Columbia to walk him physically up to the opportunity and say, there's no reason you can't be here. I want you to remember that the university is here and that you can be in it. Seven years old. Yeah. What happened to them? No, you know, you, you, you're talking about something important, which is people being able to see themselves, right? It's, it's this idea of visualization. A lot of things that happen in communities that are impoverished is that people don't have opportunities to see themselves doing things or people who look like them doing things that give you the, um, that empower you to believe that you can see yourself there. You can see others who look like you. So the media could be very powerful in helping these disadvantaged people to see that opportunity exists for them. Yeah. yeah. I think Mrs. Obama was useful, very useful. Uh -huh. I hope you agree with me. You know, look, I, I, I'm a fan of Obama's and there's there's uh, and, and there's there's things that realistically couldn't do and maybe shouldn't have done. And, and people always want to tell me all the things that he shouldn't have done and what he did wrong. And I, I, I can't go there. there. There's too many other things yeah. that are wrong in society to pick on the one black president who I think did what he could and what he had access to. I'm not going to demonize what he didn't do for the black community, which I just think is crazy. He was very resented as a black president. I yeah. mean, more challenging. I, I can't think of much more than trying to create change in a society that doesn't want to change, quite frankly. It doesn't want to change. It doesn't want to change. Uh, look, Doc, I could, talk, I could talk to you for hours and clearly we're going to have more conversations. Mm -hmm. I do want to say a couple of things. One, we made it through that construction at your house. 
and practice done. <laughs> we did that. Number one. Number two, it is clear to us that in your incredible career and as it's ongoing, you are changing the narrative. I don't have to ask you that that question. You are, so, that's you are. one of the most important things anyone ever said to me. Do you think I really have memory? I really am. I, listen, I think you know me well enough by now to know I, I don't I don't blow smoke anywhere. I say I, I, I call it the way I see it. And I'm very impressed with what you've done, what you continue to do. And I'm thrilled that you've invited me in on a part of the process because I think we have something to say. And uh, and I and I appreciate our time and our conversations together. JD, I hope we'll be friends. I, I think we are friends. <laughs> Listen, I want you to tell me uh, where people can find you, find your work. Is there uh, a link or something we can add? Uh, info at gendermed.org, O-R-G. Okay. is our website. I'm a emerita professor at Columbia University, and I have an email. I'd be happy to hear uh, anybody. MJL2 at Columbia.edu is my email. So Great. Wonderful to see your lovely face and to hear your amazing stories and your journey. Um, let's stay connected and do what we do. Well, thank you so much, J.D. It was a wonderful interview, and I feel uh, very spontaneous on both our parts. <laughs> great, great. Well, thanks again for coming on, Doc. J.D. and I want to thank our fabulous producers at I Am Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to IamMusicGroup.com, and the team will hit you back. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.